Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today, our guest is Dr. Joshua Bennett, the Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. Dr. Bennett is on New Books in African American Studies to discuss his new book, Being Property Once Myself, Blackness and the End of Man, published in 2020 by Harvard University Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bennett. Thanks for having me, Adam. I appreciate it. No doubt, no doubt. So, you know, we were talking offline uh, about the uh, about the origin story of our, you know, friendship here. And so, uh, you know, let, let, let's start off, you know, what's the origin story of, of uh, being property once myself? Let's hear about that. Yeah, so in many ways, the project has a number of divergent origin stories, but the one that immediately comes to mind is where I'm a first-year graduate student at Princeton, and I'm in a seminar on minstrelsy, and we're reading Charles Chestnut's uh, The Conjure Woman and other Conjure Tales, and I remember reading The Gray Wolf's Haint, reading Poe Sandy, and thinking about these different tales in which uh, enslaved Black people were transformed into a, a wide range of of creatures, into sort of mud monsters, into wolves, into trees, and thinking about why, you know, at the, the end of the 19th century, would a Black writer uh, create this sort of world on the page? Why would you turn uh, to plants and to animals, right, for people who had been historically not only uh, compared through racist, denigrating tropes to forms of non-human life, but also who had quite literally been uh, sort of living commodities themselves. Why would you make that sort of counterintuitive move? And that question is one that stuck to me. You know, uh, that, that first year, I had a hunch that that same kind of opening, that same set of questions or possibilities might be quite prevalent in the Black literary tradition. And it turned out to be true. Uh, so starting with Chestnut, moving through uh, Douglas, moving through Henry Bibb, uh, Harriet Jacobs, Harriet Tubman, just thinking as expansively as I could uh, at that moment in my career, uh, I tried to pull together, you know, a bunch of disparate threads around this idea of uh, animality and blackness as being fundamentally inextricable from one another in the American imagination, and that inextricability being borne out perhaps uh, through the labor of black letters. So that was the thread I wanted to trace, and that's where Being Property Once Myself began uh, as a project. And, uh, and and in the you know early part of the title, right, being property once myself. Can you talk about where that comes from for those who um, you know might not get that, or even the the subtitle as well, which which obviously is an important part too. For sure, for sure. So the title, being property once myself, actually comes from an untitled poem uh, in Lucille Clifton's 1972 collection, Good News About the Earth, right, where she says, "Being property once myself, I have a feeling for it." That's why I can talk about environment. 
And I was absolutely struck by this passage. <laughs> you know, at that point, I think I was in my second or third year of graduate school, and I was thinking about uh, the the title as a kind of framing device for the dissertation. And I realized that that was it, that this was a project not just about sort of animal imagery uh, in African-American literature, but about that feeling that Lucille Clifton names. What is the feeling that arises in the presence of the animal uh, within the scope of African-American literature? How do we name that thing? How do we pursue it, right? Uh, So the dissertation was actually uh, in pursuit of the animal uh, in African-American literature. And the move to Blackness and the End of Man uh, in terms of the, the book project was largely inspired by an extended engagement with the work of Sylvia Winter, right? So there I'm trying to think about the sort of figures of Man 1 and Man 2 within Winter's oeuvre and really try to think about the, the figure of man as an over-representation, right? The idea that man sort of masquerades as the only viable vision of the human genre. And so what might we find in Black authors that are willing to turn to figures that have been historically used as, as sites of derogation, might we find there another vision uh, of human being and becoming, one that is uh, potentially liberatory uh, and more beautiful, uh, more, more evocative for those of us that are abolitionists and even just have an abolitionist sort of imagination and a desire for a world, uh, as I say in the book, without cages or chains, right? So that that's where I got the title from. And that's what is really motivating the project, I think, that the work of, of Clifton and, and Winter in particular, alongside these other authors that I'm looking to uh, in the different chapters. And so with that, too, talking about inspiration and, and such, too, I, I have to go to your acknowledgments uh, where you thank um, uh, someone who near and dear to both of our hearts, Dr. Imani Perry. Hey, Dr. Perry, I know you're listening. Um, and also uh, Bill Gleason. And, and I'll take a, a part of it from from the actual text. Um, and I quote, taking me on you, you, this is where you thank uh, Imani and Bill Gleason for and I quote, taking me on. Uh, as an energetic, wide-eyed, 22-year-old and helping hone my thinking around the Black environmental imagination. Take us back to those earlier moments. How did Imani Perry and Bill Gleason hone your thinking around the Black environmental imagination? Uh, In so many different ways. So I I took an independent study uh, with Imani during my second year at Princeton. And therein, we read, you know, The Known World by Edward P. Jones. Uh, we read Legal Theory together. We thought about Toni Morrison. Uh, and between her and Bill, who again was helping me really hone my, my reading and thinking around Chestnut in those, those earliest stages, I think they just helped me find another language for the, the pursuit, you know, the central pursuit of the project. They helped me think about Blackness and animality when juxtaposed not solely as a site of shame, because uh, that was something I struggled with quite a bit in the beginnings of this project, was what I was after shameful. Um, did it make sense? Was it something that I was simply in, imposing on the archive? And even if this was potentially true, even if Black people had historically, you know, turned to animal figures as as liberating sites, was that something that we needed to uncover or or think about together? Was that actually potentially powerful in any meaningful way? And I think Bill and Imani really encouraged me to to leap forward uh, into what my imagination had produced at that moment and what it has continued to in the in the time since. Incredible, incredible, and uh, you know, as as folks on the podcast probably know, you know, 
Dr. Dr. Perry, you know, both both Dr. Perry's, uh, Dr. Teresa and <laughs> right, right, uh, right. Dr. Imani, you know, uh, you know, they're incredible. Right. And, and it's funny because um, I didn't even know who who Imani Perry was because I only knew her mother. Uh, right. So my introduction was, you know, Dr. Teresa Perry and not uh, Dr. Imani Perry. But uh, I quickly did find out who she was. And uh, it's been a blessing ever since. So, uh, yeah. hey, Dr. Perry, I, like I said before, I know you're listening. Um, and so the the, the <laughs> right the next question I have for you though is um you know I'm I'm, I'm fascinated always with how folks uh, ultimately choose to organize their texts um, and so can you describe um, ultimately how you organize being property once myself and you know dig a little deeper to the writing process involved in constructing such a richly dense dense text yeah uh, so the organization of the book was a long sort of complicated process in many ways, because my first thought was to just go chronologically, you know, in terms of um, the order in which the central texts had been published, right? Um, And that version of things, of course, their eyes would be uh, before Native Son, right? But eventually, part of how I started to think about it was in this kind of tripartite model, right? Where I wanted the reader to move from a sort of pest to property to, uh, to pest, right? Or rather pest to property to, to pet. And so in doing that, in beginning with the sort of the, the rat uh, and with ending, at least in the first iteration, right? In the dissertation with, um, with the dog, part of what I was trying to capture there were these sort of tail ends of this spectrum, right? The sort of outright uh, disgust that one experiences in the presence of pestiferous life, moving to the real kind of difficult um, fraught intimacy of the pet relationship. And in the middle, really thinking about both the mule and the rooster as these sort of farm animals, right? This idea that they are property uh, on the farm or else like in or near uh, the homestead, right? That, that for me was the way of thinking about the structural elements of the book. Now, after the dissertation uh, was finished and I'd already begun the process of editing those chapters, looking towards the book, that's when uh, I realized that all the the animals that I'd, I'd dealt with so far, for the most part, lived on land. Uh, and I had a conversation with one of my cousins, actually, who was incarcerated and had taken a class with Marcus Redeker. And he reached out to me uh, via telephone and he asked if I'd been reading any Marcus Redeker. And of course, I, you know, I had. I'd been uh, introduced to the work in graduate school. But it was only at that point that I really started thinking seriously about what Redeker calls terracentrism. Right, the idea that all important human history has taken place on land, and so then it was, I realized that I, I had to, you know, take the the book underwater, as it were. Um, that it only made sense to to end in the blackness uh, beneath the surface of the sea. Uh, so it was in part, you know, my cousin's prompting, uh, but then also conversations that I had during my time at the Harvard Society of Fellows uh, with one of my good friends, who's a deep sea paleontologist. Uh, <laughs> who studies fish wow. uh, at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. And we were having a conversation uh, where she was just talking at length uh, about the blackness at the bottom of the sea and all of the colors that are there, even in the complete and utter absence of light. And then I thought, well, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's black social life in a certain kind of way, right? All of this mm-hmm. robust possibility and color and vibrance uh, that has no real right to exist, right? And, and yet it does. And so given those twin sort of prompts, right, that come from such radically different places, right? One is this, you know, elite space within an elite space in the Society of Fellows at, at Harvard. And then there's my, my cousin, you know, um, 
reaching out from federal prison. Um, but but both of those conversations really led me to the the, the same place um, in terms of the construction of the book. So, wow. That that is an incredible story, and um, you know Marcus is a friend, and and that dude is incredible. What an incredible human being, um, and and so it's just really fascinating to hear uh, how this came to be because you know I, that was that was not something that you can necessarily get from the book, all right. And so yeah. that's why interviews are really so important, um, and, and and so as well thinking about things that also might not necessarily be in the book. Um, talking about challenges, what was the most challenging part about writing and and also constructing being property once myself? Oh, the most challenging part, I think, was just the, the actual writing itself, um, especially for newer books like Salvage the Bones, right, where I, you you aren't working with much, you know, in the way of a secondary criticism, and so you're just sitting with extensive close readings of these various scenes. You want to get it right. The author is still alive, you know, <laughs> like Jasmine Ward mm-hmm. is clearly mm-hmm. out there and can read the book and, you know, uh, say this is completely ridiculous, you know, this this reading and just trying to, to go to war with with that. I mean, I was also, Adam, at the same time writing a book of poetry, you know, as I was composing the, the dissertation and then writing my second book of poetry as I was uh, editing that dissertation and, and transforming it into a book. So part of the difficulty, too, was really giving myself the space to let the poetry feed the prose. Um, While Mm. I was in graduate school, you know, some of the more difficult feedback I got in the beginning of my career was uh, around the idea that being a poet meant that people would not take me seriously as a literary scholar uh, and that the poetry was a distraction. Uh, So one of the real struggles I had was to try to make this a book of literary criticism uh, that was rigorous, um, but also one that had a kind of poetic sensibility that didn't just take poetry seriously, you know, as I, as I tried to throughout the text, you know, looking at Tara Betts and Carl Phillips and Major Jackson and, and, and taking up their work throughout, but also really reads with the, with the kind of um, energy and, and, and music uh, of, of a collection of poetry. You know, poetry was my first love. It was the first genre or form that really spoke to me. You know, my, my first Poets were preachers, and, and in many ways, those were the first literary critics I ever came across as well. And so, I, I want the book in its best moments to to sing like a sermon, you know. Um, and then that's how I close one of the chapters. You know, there's a, a the chapter on Dawes is a world beneath the world, and, and it shimmers. You know that that moment for me is is all about the kind of um, black theology, black praise that, that I grew up with, right? That maybe we were people that have been made to reside at the underside of modernity, you know, but uh, the world we built, the Black social life that we operated in and through every day uh, was irreducibly beautiful. And so I wanted the book to read that way, if at all possible. And let me tell y'all, as someone who who finished the book, you know, not long ago, he did it and did it very well. <laughs> all right. Let, let me tell y'all, like, it was just like I'm. I'm just gonna be honest with you. I actually, I am not someone who reads books multiple times. It, it just has never honestly been my thing. But, but, and clearly, you know, I'm going for the butt. I'm clearly <laughs> going but here, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to read it again. Uh, because there, there's a lot of, um, you know, I, I work, I do work, um, in um, Black Appalachia, right? I, I, I do, wow. uh, still, uh. To help do a project down there with the National Park Service and looking at um, Black life uh, historically and contemporaneously 
um, in the spaces around, in and around the uh, present uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Um, and so just thinking about your your work and the Black environmental imagination and, and such, right, because that was not something that I was trained in in undergrad, master's, or even here in my PhD at Rutgers. Mm-hmm. But now it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, damn, like, yo, yeah. quarantine be damned. I need to like, you know, add that uh, to, well, unofficially, well, it's, I just said it on the podcast, so I guess it's official now, but uh, right, add right. it to the <laughs> list of things, <laughs> of things I got to read uh, for, for my own work, because, um, you know, your your work provides me a lot, and I'm sure there are listeners who will turn into readers, um, a lot of food for thought about blackness, property, environment, nature, and also leisure. Because who gets to, mm. to have leisure time in, in nature, I think, sure. is, is very important and also germane to, to many of the points that you bring up in the book, too. Um, and, and, and also, right, I'm not trained as a, a literary scholar and such, and, and many of the listeners aren't either. So if you don't mind, can you speak about, you know, what methodologies and also reading practices and such uh, that you haven't necessarily talked fully about yet, did you employ to gain the, you know, the, the great insights uh, readers will see in being property once myself? Yeah. So, I mean, I just going back to Bill Gleason and Imani Perry quickly, they trained me in a certain method of close reading that one, on the one hand, right, um, takes seriously the idea that literature can help us read the social world. Right. And so part of what I was trying to do from the very beginning was not just analyze uh, in a sort of um, formalistic manner the, the various formal elements of, of the text, but really to think about my growing up in South Yonkers, New York, and what that meant for my relationship with dogs. Right. And a neighborhood mm-hmm. where people engaged in dog fighting. And that was actually my introduction <laughs> to dogs as pets. Right. You're talking about, again, wow. this distinction. Right. So this distinction between having a sort of inside and outside dog was also very important. My, my father is from um, Alabama. Right. Grew up eating Red River clay. My mother is from the South Bronx. Right. Grew up in a, a kitchenette with uh, seven or eight other people in it uh, around mm-hmm. rats and roaches. Right. So but both of their experiences with animals are widely different. Right. And I, I wanted to be able to bring that experience to bear in the way that I was reading someone like Jasmine Ward, right? Who somehow pulled off the incredible feat of winning a national book award for a book about dog fighting. I mean, I mean, I think this, mm. that's, it's quite the accomplishment, but it's because she writes about it with all of both the ugliness and tenderness that that kind of subject matter demands when we look at it within the scope of the black social sphere, right? People who themselves are given over to these various forms of violence every day are thinking quite differently about interspecies relationships than we might if we only look at it through a dominant frame. So part of, of the, the kind of method I was employing in terms of my reading was to let the, the social worlds of my, uh, of my youth and my adulthood sort of uh, ping back and forth uh, between the text uh, at, at the level of an interpretation. Uh, and also just to bring a, a wide range of theorists to bear uh, on the way that I was reading, to, to think with you know black historians with continental philosophy with literary theory uh, as a way to explore the sort of fullness and depth uh, of the text that I was engaging with you know to bring disability mm-hmm. theory to bear for example um in the in the chapter on song of solomon because my you know my master's thesis was on disability studies 
right? Um, and I come Goodness, from a family, okay. yeah, and I come from a family with multiple people with disabilities in it, and so so for me the so for me the sort of uh, meta disciplinary apparatuses of something like animality studies, disability studies, black studies are, are always present for me uh, when I read a text. So I'm trying to bring uh, a number of different methodologies to bear. And just quickly on the point you made about leisure, you're making me think about, of course, you know, uh, Christian Cooper, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this, brother that just, right this brother that was recently uh, in Central Park <laughs> trying to take yep. a, a leisurely stroll <laughs> and look at some birds, right? Um, and encounters Amy Cooper and what? Her dog, right? Mm-hmm. And so even there you have this this incredible moment, right? That actually in so many different ways kind of a reflects this long history of the intersections of race and species in the United States, right? You have this, this white woman that is clearly visibly abusing uh, her companion and her ostensible companion animal, right? On camera. And then you have this black man and this activity, right? Bird watching, which is fundamentally in a certain way about a respectful distance from the unknowable animal, right? Yep. Doesn't doesn't claim that the birds are his kin, right? Doesn't claim ownership of the birds, right? It's actually about um, a kind of loving proximity to animal life that is rooted in observation, um, and and to see that clash, right, with Amy Cooper, her her simultaneous dehumanization, right, or attempted dehumanization rather of this black male stranger. Right. And her clear, clearly inhumane relationship to her own dog, though one imagines she would claim, right, that she's um, a good liberal and thus loves animals, would never abuse animals. Right. You'll call mm-hmm. the police to, to kill a black man you don't know, but you'd never abuse an animal. Right. We, we see those contradictions laid bare in a moment like that, um, but also clearly this very fraught history. Right. Um, that even simultaneously, as we have a white supremacist world in which nature, Right, um, the natural world, animals, plants are subdued in the name of uh, this kind of ecological devastation, alongside uh, labor that's extracted from Black people. You have those same Black folk cultivating what I think, at least, is a more ethical relationship to the earth. So, in, in the book, I'm trying to hold those things together uh, through the lens of what I'm calling the Black environmental imagination, which is forged in the fire, you know, of, of that. Uh, that deprivation and that violence, um, but on the other side, I think gives us the instruments we need to imagine another world. And considering, you know, the fire, right, and considering the flames and and mm. and what's fanning those flames, and thinking about literally what was happening, what less than you know, some somewhere like twelve to twenty hours ago, um, in Minneapolis and St. Paul and Louisville in, you know, places around the country, you know, things going up in flames and just thinking yeah. about, right. You think about the world that you're imagining, um, in, in, in your book and also just as a human being and as a black person, um, just, just thinking about how those flames provide, you know, not only something to tear down, but just thinking about what will be built anew, um, yeah. a- a- after that. Right. So, so, as I told you offline, it was very fascinating. I stayed up very late. Yeah. Mom, don't listen. Mom, mom, don't listen to this part. <laughs> I stayed up very late, like yeah. six, seven in the morning, just because I was like going between reading and 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 just scrolling through Twitter and just seeing everything. Like, mm. damn, bro. Like, whoa. And and there's a way that the quarantine 
kind of is supposed to provide you a distance from things that this yeah. moment just tells you that it, it you can't right everybody has yeah. a has a role to play not everyone will be in the streets we we do understand that but yeah. it's like that distance is mm. being is being torn down um and, and and your book makes me think a lot about property blackness anti-blackness and 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 what does property what does it mean to have once been property and now you see that same kind of private private property being torn down and and you as the former you know quote unquote former property are the ones doing it right yes. just thinking about just that kind of relationship um is something that i was like yo reading your book while doing it like that's something i will not forget yeah wow like like at all Thank you for yeah. that. That means a for, great deal, brother. Um, I mean, in part two, because even the sort of criticisms we're seeing, right, um, mm-hmm. of protester engagement in Minneapolis, largely seem to me, at least the tone from some of what I read is is condescending, right, deeply condescending, and clearly mm-hmm. tied to this idea, right, that Black people used to be property, right, and need to act according to to white mandates, right? No matter what, in every single situation. They're always in a position to be pandered to, right? By everyone. And they're also in a position to be themselves uh, summarily destroyed. I mean, you saw these these tweets, right? These President Trump tweets, right? About bringing in the military and uh, that weird sort of rhyme he threw in there about looting and shooting, right? I I was like, that, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Blew my mind. I was like, all right, this is not television. Why why are you trying to throw out catchphrases about mass killing? Right. But again, it's this, it has everything to do with the ostensible relation between black people and white civil society. Right. The idea that uh these people have acted out of order, they have acted ungratefully, and they must be continuously uh ritually killed, right? And then punished after the fact right? if they dare to protest that injustice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that was something that I, I literally read. I was like, hold on. He ain't no philosopher. He ain't no none of that. But that just the there was a melody to it that just seemed ghostly. Um and 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 it also makes me think about, you know, to connect uh, another part of your book, thinking about the role of fugitivity plays and being property once myself. So can, can you talk about um, the role fugitivity plays um, in, in your understanding of not only our world, but also the, the the world that's being constructed in being property once myself, if you can? No, 100%. So, I mean, at the, the moment in graduate school, when I chose fugitivity as a frame for the book, I was reading a ton of Nate Mackey and Fred Moten, Mm-hmm. And trying to think about what would happen if we extended some of those insights, particularly around Black art and Black performance, to the non-human world, right? That part of what someone like Henry Bibb, for example, was describing when he talked about his envy of the animal was particularly its capacity for fugitive flight, right? So he would say, you know, if a, if a white man attacks me, I have no recourse, right? But the bird can fly away, right? The snake can attack and poison him, right? So it's this this idea that there are all these potentials, not just for escape, but also subversion, right? A kind of sub, uh, a kind of fugitive potential that was imminent to animal life that became a site um, 
of sometimes real envy, right, in the text that I'm interested in, but also a site of commonality, right, to take flight like the wolf, to take flight uh, like the eagle, like any other form of sort of like bird life, uh, for example. And I was compelled by that idea that fugitivity was actually a site of interspecies coalition uh, and in a way to think with animals differently, right, than what I'd seen so far in the field of uh, animal studies, which is originally really where I thought I was going to find my home. But I realized that more of what I was interested in is what Michael Lundblad in his book, Birth of the Jungle, calls animality studies, right? I was actually interested in these sort of um, historical and otherwise moments of overlap uh, between human and non-human animals and what sort of new theoretical possibilities and opportunities they produced. And fugitivity there for me seemed like a concept that absolutely had everything to do uh, with not just human forms of life, but with these non-human forms of sociality that I'm also trying to explore in the book. Mm. Mm. And, and it makes me think a lot as well, just about not only fugitivity and, and flight and, and environment, but also just the nature of black freedom, right? Yeah. What, what, you know, and just to ask you plainly, what kind of world are you? Uh, uh, what kind of world do you want? Right. I, I heard mm. um, someone cited in your book was asked that uh, on the Teray show, uh, Teray being, you know, the the, the amazing uh, podcast host and writer, mm. um, asked your your um, your mentor, I'm sure, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, that right. And, and I remember listening to that and, and trying to think about his answer. And so I'm asking you as a, you know, as a mentee, you know, being being asked that now, right, of him, what world are you trying to build? And, and mm. what does Black mean in, in that project? Yeah, I mean, so the world I'm trying to build, I think, is tied to the book as a work of literary theory, but also extends beyond it. You know, so on the one hand, as an abolitionist and as someone that's been an abolitionist for really, I think, since I was a little boy, in part because my older brother was incarcerated when I was quite young. And so I've always thought about what it means that uh, in a world where one, we all commit uh, criminal acts, you know, every day. <laughs> Many of us, you know, jaywalk on the way to work, et cetera, right? Um, and we live on stolen land, right? And so part of what I've been trying to think about is how all of my theoretical projects, uh, all of my poems can hopefully contribute to a vision uh, of a world without prison and a world without police, right? And mm. carceral institutions, again, are not just limited to the human world. Um, So I think about this with zoos, of course, with aquariums, and just the ways in which animal captivity is sort of built into the human social world in ways that we uh, not just can visibly see, right, but actually pay to attend, and how that becomes almost the the kind of um, really the opposite in some ways of of prisons, which are often kept out of sight, right? This idea that human captivity Mm -hmm. takes place, you know, far beyond our our everyday vision. And so the the world I'm trying to build is is a freer one. Uh, on the one hand, right? I'm also, I think, trying to see a world in which poetry is just taken much more seriously, uh, <laughs> where poetry mm. is something that's an intimate part uh, of an American education um, in particular, right? I think we're living in a moment in which we see the the denigration of our language happening in real time in ways that are absolutely devastating. And learning to to read poetry carefully, thoughtfully, lovingly, was something that transformed my relationship to language. I think it taught me how to read. It taught me how to write. It taught me how to, to speak. It taught me how to teach, right? So uh, another part of the world I'm, I'm trying to build is, is one 
where we can make time for beauty um, that we can give our, our hours over to that pursuit. Mm. And you speak about teaching. Um, and obviously the other side of this coin is that you are a teacher. Um, so, so can you talk about, you know, how do elements of being property once myself, right? How do, how do they make it into your classroom, right? As, as you know, as a, as a professor at Dartmouth. Sure. So I teach a class. The first class I actually ever taught at Dartmouth was called the Black Outdoors. <laughs> and so, oh, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Inspired, you know, by uh, J. Cameron Carter, Sarah Jane Servanek, right? Um, and their, their book series, but also this brilliant uh, series of talks they had at Duke where they interviewed you know, Sadia Hartman and Fred Moten and others. And so part of what we're trying to think about that course is um, we're really trying to think about Black environmentalism as a kind of through line. <laughs> Uh, through Black literary studies, right? We're watching uh, The Woods episode of Atlanta. We're watching Moonlight. Uh, we're reading Their Eyes Are Watching God, but also Zora's essay on, you know, the pet Negro, right? Um, we're reading Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks and thinking about not just the passage where she talks about, you know, these beautiful flowers and buttons and other objects, but also uh, the chapter of Maud Martha Spares the Mouse, Right. And the, the black kitchenette historically as a site of both intimacy and great terror. Right. We're reading Camille Dungy's brilliant 2009 anthology, Black Nature. Right. And trying to think about what it means that you can have 400 years of black nature poems in a book. <laughs> and yet, and still, uh, someone can be surprised that Christian Cooper loves to, to go look at birds. You know what I mean? Or that he's, you know, on mm-hmm. the, the Audubon Society in New York City. Or that, you know, people are surprised to hear that Frederick Douglass, you know, and this is the way I opened the book, right? But was someone that cared very deeply about animals um, and had them as a, a major part of his uh, sort of a political project. And so for me, part of what I've been been trying to put together in my teaching is exposing these ideas to students. You know, I also taught a class on a, on on Black love, right? Where we had an entire section on, on prison abolition, where we're reading George Jackson and the poetry of Dwayne Betts, and we're reading essays and interviews from Asada Shakur and Angela Davis, right? And trying to think about how do Black people love each other in the era of mass incarceration, right? Where mm. so many of us have our, you know, uh, mothers and sisters and sons and daughters and brothers and fathers and friends uh, locked in cages, you know, um, and disproportionately so, um, but because they're Black, right? How do we? take that seriously, right? How do we read uh, If Bill Street Could Talk? You know, now, decades later, through that lens of the era of mass incarceration, how do we think about the sort of alternate ending uh, that, that Barry Jenkins creates on screen and how that's inflected, perhaps, by mass incarceration? These are the kind of classes I'm teaching, and it's, it's been an incredible experience, you know, for, for, for so many different reasons on that front. I taught a contemporary American poetry class that had over 50 students in it, and you know, we, we watched Slam, you know, the, the Saul Williams. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was just kind of amazing to get the chance to teach, you know, spoken word alongside, you know, uh, Wanda Coleman and Terrence Hayes and, you know, all these brilliant Black contemporary poets, Harriet Mullen and, and Vivi Francis and Gregory Pardlow and, and have my students read that work together, uh, Largely having, again, no formal training in poetry at any point in high school or college up to that moment, right? But yearning for that, saying, I wish I knew how to uh, read poetry. Almost all of them wrote poetry, which was amazing. I I had them write a poem uh, before every class session. You know, we were free write together for about 10 to 15 minutes. 
Um, but many of them were, you know, amateur poets on their own, right? But with no idea how to turn that into something that uh, not even necessarily was a professional pursuit, but something that they could feel good about as a craft practice, right? So part of what I'm trying to do as a teacher is just assure people that you can do that, <laughs> that you can have, you know, a day job and be a poet, or you can be a full-time poet as I was, you know, from ages 19 to 30, pretty much, you know, I just started at Dartmouth about a year and a half and you know, I'll be 32 this summer. And so for, for much of my life, really, since I was a teenager, I made my living on the road, you know, as a poet, as someone that was performing sometimes in rooms with 10 people in it, sometimes in, you know, concert venues with over 1200 people in them. Um, and, and I want my students to understand that those spaces exist, that people still gather to do this, this ancient thing, you know, called the, you know, making of, of poems and, and the recitation of poems. And that that's a, a holy, uh, political, transformative thing. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's a large part of my, my teaching praxis, you know, is to introduce those ideas and to just learn from these, you know, brilliant, generous students, you know, that I'm so blessed to have the chance to collaborate with. You know, my students, um, they've, they've changed my life. They've transformed my perspective. And I think they've kept me honest as a scholar. They've made me open up my language. Um, and they've made me think critically about my politics, you know, mm. at, at every turn. Let, lest I get comfortable or think I have it all figured out. You know, my students regularly push me to be more engaged, more thoughtful, and more courageous. They hold mm. me to... Um, they hold me to the standards of the writers that I teach <laughs> and that I share with them, right? So when one of the first texts you give your students in a Black Outdoors class is Sylvia Winters, No Humans Involved, right? You have to think about that in its proper context of her writing that as an open letter to her colleagues at Stanford, you know, in the wake of the Rodney King beating. How do you model that in your own life? How do you operate in that kind of courage and do- dynamism and imagination? I think that happens in the classroom. You know, those kind of questions get forwarded and you have to take them seriously. And and speaking of that kind of environment, right, we're living in that environment right now. What would a letter like that look like right now, right? And and as things are, you know, literally on fire and as, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get justice for, you know, not black men, but black people, right? People out there on, on Facebook and, and Twitter and everything, um, and and just trying to just just change our understanding of of the possible um, in, in our world. And it actually makes me go to uh, a passage from from your book on page one thirty nine, um, where you're discussing uh, Hurston, and um, and uh, this is this is what you write. Um, there is no bond unmarred by blood. This, for Hurston, is the work of the figure of the mule as a problem for thought. How we might collaborate across unfathomable distance and think about difference not as an occasion for domination, but as an opportunity to sketch a dying world anew, end quote. Yeah. Yeah. That, to me, among the amazingness of the, of the about 200 words that you have on the page that really struck me right as i said i was reading that last that last night um and you spoke about this obviously in your other answers but if you if you can in the time that we have remaining in what ways can we think better about futures where difference is not commodified and Mm. dominated yeah 
Oh, in what ways can we do that? You're asking? Yeah, yeah, uh. because because I'm sure there there's some people that are thinking right. What what are things that people can do, or or even right? Imagine that the people that are listening are in your classroom at Dartmouth. Mm. Oh, that's a difficult question. I mean, I think for me, the only way I've ever done it is by getting outside one of familiar institutional space, I guess is part of the way <laughs> that I've tried mm-hmm. to do it. So I think my first encounters with so many of the ideas that transformed my life happened in poetry slams, strangely enough, <laughs> you know, like really mm-hmm. thinking about um, anti-imperial struggle, thinking about U.S. militarism, uh, thinking more in depth about uh, sort of queer studies, disability theory, critical theory as such. A lot of that didn't even happen in the the classroom for me in college. A lot of that was going to these poetry slams with people from the community in Philadelphia that were from all across the city, all across the world, but had gathered in the name of the art form, right? So part of, part of I think, the work of creating that that sort of scenario that you're describing. I mean, in the scene you're thinking about with in, with Hurston, the sentence right before that is about this idea that there is no communion with the animal without sort of facing the prospect of your own death, right? Uh, because it's it's not it's not cute, <laughs> right? Relation mm-hmm. is is not cute. And here I'm thinking about Edward Glissant thinking about sort of colliding opacities when he talks about relation, right? R- relation is about difficulty. It, it's not about sort of naming one's privilege or even thinking about, I think, various sort of identities um, necessarily at the same time and how they intersect or overlap one another or in what ways am I in a a dominant relationship to another person and stopping there, right? It has to do with the difficulty of communicating across that that great divide of one paying what is owed, right? Um, And here I'm thinking about reparation, not just as a sort of... um, set of material quantities, but as an aesthetic and as, as an ethics, right? How do we repair our world? How do we repair our relationships to one another? And how do we understand that there are social and otherwise debts that need to be paid, right? I think that's one way that we can think about difference without domination. Um, but also, how do we get comfortable with opacity, right? We're saying there are things not only that we don't know about one another, but that we can't know and that we don't need to know, right? How do we really encounter the mystery of other people in a meaningful way and understand that difference is not just not an occasion for a dominion, but it's actually an opportunity for surprise and wonder and astonishment, right? And how incredible that is. What a marvel that is, that every day we get to encounter the unknown in each other. How do we think about that as a a sort of grounds for organizing, reading together, thinking together, right? Not not what we have uh, in in common necessarily, but but what makes us radically uh, divergent from one another and opaque to one another, right? That that's what I'm in pursuit of in this this book, you know. Mm. Absolutely, and one um, one of the last couple of questions I have for you too. Sure. Um, and 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 you peppered it throughout the te- uh, throughout the our discussion too, but um, what and or who inspires you to do the work that you do and to keep yourself going, right? Mm. Wow, so many different people, living or dead, or both? Both. Let's go both. Okay, Okay. well, I mean, we got to start with uh, with my mama. You already know. 
Um, I already know. All, all day, every day. Shout out to, you know, BX, Yonkers as well. Um, gotta be my mom, gotta be my older sister, you know, my father, my little brother, all of my family and my, and my closest friends, in part because I, I think they just keep me honest. You know, my, the first people to hear my job talk were my parents. You know, my parents about 70 years old, <laughs> both of them. And I delivered this 40-minute job talk for them, which was fairly dense, but they sat through the whole thing. We did a Q&A. And uh, the, I think that that was just an important reminder for me that uh, we have to be accountable into the academy to the people that uh, love us, right? And the people that made us possible, even the people that don't necessarily love us, right? But um, but But the communities we come from, Right. And uh, even the communities we don't come from, Black people all across the world, we're accountable to them. Our work needs to be accountable to them, uh, which for me doesn't mean it has to be less rigorous. It means it actually needs to be more rigorous because the problems we're up against are monumental. Right. So my family inspires me. June Jordan inspires me every day. Uh, my sense when reading her poetry and essays uh, in graduate school was that she was probably the most sort of under theorized person in Black literary studies. Uh, so part of my hope for the future is that more and more people really pay close attention to uh, June Jordan's oeuvre, uh, Sylvia Winter, Lucille Clifton, I've already mentioned, Gwendolyn Brooks, I gestured toward briefly, but of course I'm inspired not just by her poetry and prose, but also her commitment to people in street organizations, to children, uh, to people who are considered uh, to be less than nothing uh, within the scope of white civil society. Gwendolyn Brooks believed that those people were smart and beautiful and worthy of study and care and recognition. Uh, and, and so I hope to model, you know, even just some uh, quantity of that kind of a radical transformative love in my life. Imani Perry, Bill Gleason, uh, Elaine Scary, who else? So many. Oh, I mean, my grandmother who passed on, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic. Um, part, she, mm. and I say this a little bit in the acknowledgements, but part of the inspiration for the book cover was actually her uh, and my grandfather who met in a strawberry field um, before they moved to New York City where they would build a family. And I've thought quite often recently about the fact that um, my grandmother uh, had dementia before she died. Um, and, and part of the way her, her caretaker says she imagined herself in those last days was as a, a teenage girl running through those fields, you know, as a uh, even in the midst of sort of being a sharecropper, right? She was able to find love and beauty in that space. And so, so much of, of what inspires me when I think back on her legacy is, is that uh, incredible imaginative capacity, that meditative tenacity, right? Um, to be in that space of what some would consider utter abjection and somehow be able to, to not just find love, but, but create it, you know, out of the air. Uh, she went on to, when she came up North, she, ran a beauty salon that I grew up in and all of the women there would, would pay me a dollar if I could spell a word with a, you know, three or more syllables. So, you know, I would say, you know, a recalcitrant metonymic, <laughs> you know, loquacious, <laughs> loquacious was my favorite word when I was five years old. And so I, I'm inspired too, by the fact that she was willing to, to use that space as one in which she could cultivate um, the sort of imaginary life world of a, of a little boy and believe that he could be somebody. So this book is for her. Uh, and, and so is uh, the work of my life. Mm. Beautiful, man. And, and, you know, that, that was one thing that caught my eye too, because um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, they met in Wilmington, North Carolina, right? Sir. Yes, sir. 
that's uh that's that's my family stomping grounds um you know so so yeah so my family um is from uh columbus county new brunswick county um and uh you have a hanover county or new hanover county um which is in wilmington and so that's right in the area where my family uh comes from and then you think about david walker um you think about you know just the you know the only quote-unquote full coup in, in American history. And so it's just thinking about um, Wilmington as an important space, right, uh, of birth and of struggle. Um, yeah. and, and so that's that's what I hear. And that's what I that's what I imagine as well with um, with, with your with your grandmother as, as well. And so, um, you know, and, and then th- and we'll we'll go out on this one. Right. What was the most rewarding experience of writing being property once myself? It's out in the world. Yeah. New Books and African American Studies listeners, we're going to support uh, Dr. Bennett here, my 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 man's my my OG here. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, you know, tell tell us about what the most uh, and it doesn't have to be one, right? Tell us about some yeah. rewarding experiences of, of writing being property once myself. Yeah, uh, uh, so one was getting the page proofs uh, in the middle of a snowstorm in Boston, and uh, my fiance did a, a photo shoot <laughs> with me <laughs> and, and the book and with our dog, Apollo. And I don't know, for some reason, there, there was something about that that just felt like everything I dreamt of wanting in my life sort of coming together, right? Um, yeah, with this this new home and this new space that we built this book that I dedicated the last eight years of my life to, you know, from that that first seminar in 2012 to its arrival in, in 2020, that felt incredibly rewarding, even though it was, you know, just the proofs, <laughs> you know, that, that, that felt like something tremendous. And to have it celebrated by the people closest to me, who again are, you know, are, are not academics, right? Um, which I don't know, I think that that's important because part of the question it seems like you were asking earlier as well about the kind of world I want to make is also about the future of the humanities, right? And the, and the future of the kind of work that uh, both you and I seek to undertake, right? As historians, as literary critics, how are we endeavoring to make the world a freer place? And how are we making our work legible to people, right? Uh, that don't operate within the academy, you know? So I think part of what was so rewarding was to get that proof, uh, to have someone I love and respect and admire, you know, hi, Pam, uh, to, to have my fiance, <laughs> you know what? Like, we're really going to celebrate. Because for me, I think I was just going to take a picture of the book and post it and I was going to be it. And she said, no, like, we need to celebrate, put on a fit, go outside. We're going to do a whole thing. And I think it, it reminded me that it's okay, not just that it's okay to celebrate when you accomplish milestones like that, but that is necessary. It's absolutely and completely necessary when you do something like finish a book that you have to honor that moment, you know? So that was incredibly satisfying and brought me great joy. What else? I think just every moment where one of my friends, where a former mentee has sent me a picture of themselves with a book, that's meant a big deal. Imani tweeting me, uh, (laughs) you know, retweeting with comments, you know, my picture of the book and asking people to teach it in part because... I don't know that I'd really considered that idea that someone would teach my book, <laughs> you know, this thing that used to be a, a PDF uh, on my laptop for many, many years in various permutations, right? So 
those, those are off the top of my head. Those are some of the most satisfying moments. And uh, those have been, you know, kind of hard to come by, you know, in the, in the midst of the pandemic. And so I don't, I don't take it lightly, you know, and I'm incredibly thankful for it. Hey man, and and, I, and I'm thankful uh, to, to to have you on uh, New Books in African American Studies because your book to me encapsulates African American studies, right? The the core, right? Wow. You 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 talk about uh, Cornell West, right? Race matters mm-hmm. in your acknowledgments and thinking about you know the the, the corpus of, of of West and and his importance to um the to the field and, and such as well and so to me i, I see your book and, and and just to let you know too um as and as a shameless plug each friday night we get together for a hashtag uh a quarantine uh happy hour you know what's up antoine and i and all and all the crew um where we just honestly just kick back and as professors grad students and and, and other folks throughout the world or mostly throughout the country we just chop it up. And and one of the things I told the folks last week before I got off was, yo, I got Dr. Josh Bennett on here. You know what I'm talking about? It's about to oh, be, wow. it's about to be flames. And so, um, and that's, you know, we do that on zoom every Friday, uh, beginning around 8 PM Eastern standard time, 5 PM, uh, Pacific standard time. And so, you know, it, when, when I think about the kind of books and, and, and what keeps us going and what provides us an understanding of, of what we're fighting for and, 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 and who we are thinking with, right. Historically and contemporaneously being property once myself, blackness and the end of man in this moment, child, please. You already know we gotta, we, we gotta boost this one. Wow. I am honored. We need to have you blurb the next one, man. Cause that, that got me hype. Hey man. Hey. Flex DJ clue, you know, level promo. Well, look. Well, we'll look at it this way, right? Look at it this way. Um, we'll call you Black Thought because you got the beard, and I'll be Flex. And, and during, 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 yeah, let's think about it that way. You, you know, you hit us with the fifteen minute no breath freestyle Black Thought. You know, what I'm saying you Philly affiliated, and then wow. you know I'll just be Funk Flex in the background saying that's bars, that's bars. You know, what I'm saying I got hair, but I ain't bald. But it, you know. I think people understand the uh, uh, the aesthetic here. Yeah, no, I feel the energy, brother. I feel that energy 100%. Man, young Tariq Trotter, I appreciate that. Let me know if you ever get the, the connect, because I, I have respect. He's a, that's an all-world lyricist right there. So thank you. Look, man. Yeah, no, for real, man. And so, you know, th- th- this has so, been a, such a great uh, conversation, y'all. And once again, we have had the amazing opportunity to discuss with Dr. Joshua Bennett, and his brand new book published by our friends at Harvard University Press. Please go get it. Go support them by the book. And that book is Being Property Once Myself, Blackness and the End of Man. And Dr. Bennett is the Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. And y'all, if you enjoy this podcast, New Books in African American Studies, why don't you go and rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts? Let us know how we're doing. Right. Because we need to we need to know how in this moment, if, if we're satisfying your need or even if there's a book that you want us to go interview the author about. Thank God I've already knew Dr. Bennett. And I'm sure there are other books out there that you all want us to go and interview folks for. So please go and do that. And once again, folks, my name is Adam McNeil, PhD student at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Over and out.